There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, it's Vashan, the co-founder of Dope Black Women. And on this episode, I'm bringing a very much needed conversation for everyone entering the second quarter of the year. And even if you're listening late, it doesn't even matter. This is a a really important conversation because there's going to be lots of tips, lots of tools, lots of practical advice that you can implement at any stage in your life. Um, And you can start right now, today, and not procrastinate, which will come up later. So yeah. Um, Joining me on this episode now is Dr. Michaela Dunbar, the author of You've Got This, which is around just over 200 pages, and I've read 200 of them. And when I tell you that this book is lit... I'm not, I'm not chatting my best. You guys know I don't lie on this podcast. So, Michaela, welcome to the podcast. Hey. How are you? I am very well, thank you. The tech stuff this morning seemed to go fine. So I'm relaxed, as relaxed as I can be. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I saw it, I read in the book that um, you're from Lewisham. I am I'm also Lewisham. from South London, so big up the we're, South we're. London massive. Hey. When I saw that, I was like, yes. <laughs> a fellow South babes. It's 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 a different it's a different kind of beast being from South. If you if you know you know. Honestly, and even when I, as I was reading it, I was like, this sounds like I wrote it. This sounds like <laughs> one of my friends in my head because there's the yeah, energy. Yeah, this is what I just... always say. I'm always talking about Michaela from the ends because I am Michaela from the ends. So. Mm-hmm. But something we ask all of our guests and we start the podcast, which I'm gonna obviously ask you, is what makes you a dope black woman? Because I inspire other dope black women. It's my intention. And it's my job to literally make every black woman a dope black woman. And I've built a platform to be able to do that. Hence why I'm on this podcast. Can we shout That's out the platform, please? It's not no small platform either. <laughs> in the book, you're like, my little community. And then in brackets, it's like, not little. It's far from little. It is a uh, Instagram community. There are 895,000 followers there at the moment. Small, 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 small followers. Um, everybody's talking to each other and the conversation around well-being and anxiety, mental health, self-doubt, overthinking is popping on that page and people are getting revelations and tips and tricks and even just from looking at the page I can see the comments people are changing things in their life and I'm very very excited about that. Now let's dive straight into the book. Okay. I opened the page not knowing what I was gonna get and it said this to every girl who ever doubted herself, trust me, you've got this. Love, Michaela. I said, oh, gosh. <laughs> Here we go. I said, oh, gosh. 
I have to stop reading already. I literally stopped and said, fuck it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, mm-hmm. what am I going to get myself mm-hmm. into? Because I know that as a person, as much as I try to like get rid of doubt in others, I am fueled with self-doubt. Mm. But, I, but I also do a lot of things to combat it. I actively do a lot of things. So even though I might be doubtful about, like, like for example, um, later on this year, I'm going to be um, talking on a panel in real life about interviewing techniques. I know on the day and closer to the day, I want to be shitting it. And I know that even accepting it, I was a bit like, oh, am I at the stage yet to do it? Yeah. But I'm yeah, also yeah. like, Shan, I'm sick and tired of you missing opportunities because of anxiety, because yeah. of fear. So just fucking do it. Absolutely. And if it, if it doesn't go that great, we move. But that's, that's, that's me of 2022. That's me of... <laughs> That's me of like halfway through 2021. Prior to that, yeah. I just wouldn't do it. Because there's also something else that I meant I should have been doing the month before. I was asked to host something and I was like, no. <laughs> They're like, I want you to host this event, you'd be great. And I was just like, no. And the yeah. thing is, in my head, I really want to. Like, in yeah. my head, this sounds so fun and so exciting. And I'm so like privileged that I was asked to, to do it. But I'm yeah. also like, nah. Yeah. So when I yeah. read that and I say it stuck out to me, I said, wow. <laughs> Just the first page is hitting. This is what I'm talking about. But for you, do, how much do you relate to that quote? This whole book is about my life. This, I 100% relate to this. This is why I wrote the book. This is the conversations I've been having in my therapy room. But also as I'm having these conversations, I'm like, this is also me. The avoidance, the self-doubt, the anxiety, the procrastination, the imposter syndrome. It's also me. So every single chapter in here is written with personal experience as well of having to go through these things, not feel like I should be here, but also I'm here. People want me to be here, but I don't feel like I should be here. And then being a psychologist on top of it with anxiety, like what even is that? Like, how does that even work? So having to get through all of that, it just gave me a lot of, as I said, personal experience which I think is very helpful as a psychologist as well, because that means you're not going to be telling your clients to do things that is too hard for even you to do. <clears throat> I had to get through it myself. I know what works. I know what blocks are going to come up. And so in the book, I've tried to mitigate the psychological jargon and the scary and that what does it mean, especially for black community as well. Like, what do you mean therapy? What are you talking about? Try to mitigate that by making it as easy and relatable and practical as possible. So, yes, I am in this book. I'm on the. Uh, my picture is there. This book is about me. I think something that I really admire as well is what you just said. The fact that you know you do work as a psychologist, but you do have your own experiences too. And I think that as someone who's um, had access to therapy, you kind of you don't think about that. So yeah. I just assume. In a very like, I mean, it's not like a conscious thought, but I, it's almost like the person that's helping me is just a helper. They don't ever need to be helped. And yeah. I do think that sometimes there's this stigma around um, therapists and that's why it kind of mm. has this sort of like block or this sort of like dis- disassociation to, with the black community. Because it's like, I don't want to go to these people who think they're holier than now, so I'm what to do with my life. Yeah, and yeah, it's really yeah, yeah, not yeah. that. Um, not but I think until you take that leap to get there, you don't know. 
And I'm honestly, when I was reading your book, if I hadn't said it already, is amazing. Um, it made me really, it made me really tap into myself and my own journey of mental health. And I remembered that the reason why I even accessed therapy in the first place was actually because of one of my friends. She made a comment. I went through something, and it was like a repeat of something else. And she goes, "The first time you went through it, you didn't get therapy." And then she said, well, "Have you thought about getting it now?" And it was just, it was a flippant, I don't think she even remembers this. It was a flippant mm. statement. It might not have even been as clear as that. And I literally mm. just went, yeah, you're right. And that day I went onto the website, signed up because I went through the NHS, da 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 da, months later I was doing it. But it was just like, sometimes you just need that person in your corner to kind of Absolutely. encourage you to go. So being a black woman and kind of having that intersection of like, knowing that therapy and accessing therapists and mental health is a very like, white space or the space that we're not normally seen in. Mm-hmm. What kind of advice do you have to encourage black women to access it? I would just say any preconceived notions that you have about therapy is usually from the television. And it's not that's not the reality. <laughs> so if you are struggling with your mental health, take it as seriously as if you've broken your arm. You would get yourself to A&E, you'd find a doctor and you would just get them to fix it. This is the same thing when it comes to depression, anxiety, PTSD, all of that kind of stuff. So if you're, if you need support, then you need to do that for yourself. Now, when it comes to finding a therapist, naturally, as a black person, you're going to want a therapist that can relate to certain things you're talking about. That's not necessary. That's not always necessary, though. So I work with a lot of white therapists, and I have a lot of white clients as well. And I think that I can understand why people might be uncomfortable with the idea of seeing somebody that's not their own ethnicity. But in my experience and with the colleagues I work with as well, it can be just as helpful. Now, you might not feel as comfortable to talk about certain things like race issues if there's discrimination at work. But it is the therapist's job to make you feel comfortable So don't be afraid to have those conversations. If you do, especially on the NHS, there's just not a lot of us. There's not a lot of us black therapists. So you will likely have a white therapist and that's absolutely okay. What I would say is start the hard conversations early on so you can develop that language to describe how you're feeling, which we don't all have. We don't have the language to say, I'm feeling anxious. What even is that? So you can get practice developing that language, but also so you can get practice talking about hard things in hard situations talking to a white therapist about racism is going to be difficult but if you do it early on then you get to see how they handle it and it's the therapist's job to make you feel comfortable enough to talk about whatever you need to talk about therapy is your space everyone says a safe space your therapy room is should be the safest space the least judgmental space we all follow our own code of conduct we all have our ethics it's not all individual to be fair we've got like regulatory bodies and all of this stuff that set it out for us but our training means that we have to be non-judgmental we have to if we don't understand we have to seek to understand that is a job of the therapist to be curious not to be discriminatory or judgmental or look down on people it's, it's the opposite of that we're in the job literally because we want to help people it sounds cliche isn't it we just want to help but that's the truth why would we do it otherwise it's not the best paying job in the world so we do it because we want to help people So don't be put off by the colour of anybody's skin when it comes to finding a therapist. Go in the room and base them off of how comfortable they make you feel to talk about real issues. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you said that, you know, this is our job. 
because I was talking to someone the other day, it was a man, and he was saying, a black man, and he was saying that, like, he's thought about going to therapy, but he's like, why would I want to sit down and talk to someone about my feelings and what I'm going through? Like, why would they care? And I was like, because it's their job. They literally went to uni (laughs) for ages for this profession. So you you would hope... That yeah. they would care. Yeah, absolutely. I always say to people, like, when they first come in the room, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm nosy. So I'm a clinical psychologist. That's my job. But also, I'm a nosy person. I love people. I'm curious about people. I've always been the person that I managed to find myself in conversations and people telling me about, I don't know, the struggles that their children are having. And this is before I was even a psychologist. You'd be at the <laughs> bus stop chilling and now someone's exactly. told you about their ex-wife who killed exactly. the dog. And you're like, what? Exactly. And you're like, all right, bye, take care. Lovely to meet you. These are all strangers, but I'm that person because I am curious. I don't like the small talk talk about the weather. I like to see how people are doing really, get to the nitty gritty and, you know, either be validating, just listen or provide solutions if I can. That's my personality. So it fits very well with being a clinical psychologist because our job is to be nosy. I don't know if I should say that, but just, you know, it's kind of what it is, isn't it? Find out what's going on for you and how we can help. And just while we're on this sort of this topic of conversation, for anyone, let's say someone's listened now to this conversation and they decided to get therapy, mm. what are signs? What are some green flags or red flags they should look out for when knowing that the therapist is right for them? Okay, so red flags: your therapist has to be on time. If they're not going to be on time, they have to let you know. They have to show up. If they're going to talk about their personal stuff, that's absolutely fine, but it has to be related to the topic, and it has to help you in some kind of way you don't want them to be really off their personal business for no reason um i would say a red flag is if they don't have any qualifications obviously so on instagram they are so many many people many many people offering i've seen offering trauma therapy and all of these kind of things and i'm like where did you study how do you know i'm sorry lived experience is not enough um, so make sure that they've got the right qualifications because they need somebody to answer to. And if there's no qualifications, there's no regulatory body. And if there's no regulatory body, there's nobody that is going to tell them, don't do that, do this. You should have done this differently, uh, which causes more potential for harm. Of course, if you've got nobody kind of watching what you're doing, then it's just wild, wild west out there. And this is this is what I've heard as well. There's been a couple of articles in the the news in the last year or so about people finding therapy and stuff from Instagram or wherever, social media, and then kind of not working out and then realising the person didn't have the right qualifications. So always check the qualifications, check that they have supervision as well. Another green flag is if you're able to explain to the therapist what's going on for you and they can tell you which treatment models they're going to use and why. So if they're going to use CBT, if they're going to use EMDR, if they're going to use ACT, this is all great. This is stuff that we all train in. But give if they're able to give you the rationale for why they're using it and how it's going to work, then that's a good sign as well. So within the Black Women community, something we kind of pride ourselves in doing is like encouraging women, obviously Black women, to show up as their true multifaceted selves. That's something me and Leanne, the other co-founder, say all the bloody mm-hmm. time. And yeah. in your book, you spoke about the fact that you now find it really easy to be unapologetic but before that wasn't something that you could kind of um you could you could show up as so just talk to me a little bit about your journey and how anyone who's listening who might be in that similar space that you was in before can come out of it yeah so I um always felt like I was in a space that wasn't meant for me after I left school that is so I went to 
school in southeast London and you know it was a it was a good school for where it was but they wasn't so hot on directing you to university and definitely not doing doctorates and all that stuff so went to college went to uni still didn't know I was going to be a psychologist but then ended up things happened and I met the, met the right people who encouraged me to be a clinical psychologist when I didn't even know it was, a, I just thought it was for television. Did not know people like me could do this or even how I would even get to do it, but it happened. So I'm on training now, clinical training. The doctorate is three years long. So you do it after your degree. Doctorate is three years long. And I'm on training and I turn up on the first day and I think I've got this in the book as well. And I've got like my braids, my South London accent. I look around I'm like everybody is blonde what is going on here why is everyone blonde obviously everybody not every single person was blonde but that's what it felt like I'm like okay cool it's fine it was really competitive to get into this training course like only three percent of people get in each year and you can only apply once a year and I got on the first time I was like all right cool can't just give over that accolade amazing (laughs) thank you um so then I get in and and then people just don't look like me and I'm just, and they're talking about things that I don't even know, skiing trips and ponies and this land and space. And not everybody's from a wealthy background at all, but the nature of clinical psychology is that you have to kind of do some free work. You have to get master's degree, which costs, at the time it was like 10 grand when I tried to do it and then stopped doing it and got my money back. Um, and not everybody can afford to do that. I personally couldn't at the time, but then you get people that can because their backgrounds are, you know, they're a bit more well-off. Anyway, so I'm in this space and I'm looking and I'm thinking, I'm here for a reason because I've got on, but people don't look like me. I don't feel confident to speak up. So I'm in lessons and I'm not speaking up. A lot of self-doubt, a lot of anxiety. So I'm coming in late and because I'm coming in late, people think I'm not taking it seriously. So then it's an unhelpful cycle that I'm in. Where it changed for me is when I started seeing clients face to face so and then I started getting results because with the with with clients I can be myself I can't pretend like I was doing in uni with the other you know clinical psychologists to be and my clinical supervisors very you do not know as a black person you don't know that you don't have to conform in the therapy room again it's a judgment-free space so I'm able to just go in there be me be normal talk about difficult things in a really easy light-hearted way we have laughs you know we we go through all the ranges of emotions in there and I get the results people are doing very very well my clinical psycho my um clinical supervisors on my placements are seeing this they're like oh this is you're really good at engagement and they're saying that but actually the evidence suggests shows that seven up to 70 percent of the change that you see within therapy is down to therapeutic relationship so actually my strong point is one of the biggest things biggest um bonuses or i guess positives that you can have as being a therapist being able to engage people so i'm getting the results i'm showing up getting the results i'm getting more confident as time goes on i'm realizing that actually my authentic self is what people like in the therapy room at least and that's all that matters like all that matters is that i'm getting results from my clients and I can only be like this. I can only be me to get results. If I have to pretend, it's not going to work. They can see through it. You, you have to be genuine in the therapy room. So then I got, I got confident in myself. And then I started to take it outside of the therapy room. 
and I started to just be me like in the in the group in the because I'm doing this at the same time as I'm doing the studying right it's all part of the same program so in the classroom when I'm learning I'm putting my hand up now and I'm saying how I'm asking my questions in the way that I'm going to ask it usually I'm thinking oh if I ask a question it's not going to sound smart enough let me not bother but now I'm like look I speak English they're gonna have to understand what I'm saying yeah I've got a little South London in me and I don't know all the big words but you understand what I'm saying so I started putting my hand up a bit more I started going for it a bit more and people seem to be drawn to that they appreciate the conversation that I was bringing to the table again I stopped avoiding the conversations. I started putting my hand up and in doing that, I got the evidence, just like in the clinical room, I got the evidence in the classroom that actually it doesn't matter how I sound or which words I, if I don't use a smart enough word, people understand what I'm saying. And actually it's easier for people to hear it in a very layman way. That's how I speak. I take the psychological jargon and I chop and screw it in my brain and I spit it out in a way that just makes sense you don't have to do too much thinking about it because that's how I operate I don't like to have to think too much about things <laughs> makes me sound lazy but it's the truth so yeah so showing up the way that I got out of my self-doubt and the imposter syndrome was I didn't avoid it kind of brings me on to my next point actually you spoke a lot in your book about the fact that you've done a lot of research with women and you noticed that a lot of women were ambitious and driven but trapped by anxiety overthinking and imposter syndrome and having a crippling fear of failure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really relatable Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, but for maybe some people who don't quite get it, what does that show up like practically? And how can we get over it? How can we overcome it? So yeah, in my experience, women that, and this is not gonna be for every woman, of course, every successful, driven, ambitious woman, because I haven't met them all, but I just know that when I talk about it, most women are like, yeah, I can relate to that, which is really interesting. So, I talk about high functional anxiety and imposter syndrome. So high functional anxiety is not a diagnosable condition or anything like that. It's quite new, but it's kind of like a, and some people don't like labels. Sometimes people, you know, find community in having a label. So you can take it or leave it. But essentially it's the constant overthinking about every decision you have to make, everything that you've said. And that overthinking then creates anxiety there's also a lot of self-doubt. So the overthinking can just be planning and over-planning and going over and over again, or it can be the what-ifs. What if I fail? What if I mess up? What if I say something silly? What if it doesn't bang? All of this kind of stuff. Then you've got the procrastination. And the procrastination comes from the overthinking and the negative thoughts. You're smiling now. The overthinking, the negative thoughts, the what-ifs, the fear of failure because you don't want to fail or because you've got all this negative Nancy thoughts in your head, you kind of put it off. You find something to watch on Netflix or you might scroll through Instagram and you're not doing what you need to do. But if you're not doing what you need to do is because there's, you know, there's lots of thoughts going on in your mind. There's lots of uncomfortable emotions coming up for you about this task or what not completing the task or even completing the task might mean for you. So you're trying to avoid all of that, right? So we're putting it off. If I don't start, then I can't fail. So procrastination is a big thing for, um, I would say, for successful women with high function anxiety, procrastination. And then after the procrastination, you get the over-functioning. You get the, shit, excuse my language, the deadline is coming. I must do it now. Stress, stress, stress. So you get it done, but with you had the whole time to get it done. And now we're in the last day. Now you're losing your mind. 
you're going to get it done. You know you're going to get it done, but you might not get it done to the standard that you would have had you started earlier. That's another thing. So you've got the overthinking, you've got the self-doubt, you've got the procrastination, you've got the the um, the overfunctioning. Then you've also got the people pleasing. Now, this is something that not necessarily everybody always relates to, but it is very common as well. When I say people pleasing, I mean being the yes man. Even people that don't consider themselves yes men when it comes to their job, because you want to do well. Remember, you're an ambitious woman at, at this point, right? You want to do well. You want to be seen. You've got a little bit of imposter syndrome as well. So you're thinking, I need to say yes to everything. I need to work even more. We've always been told as black women as well, we need to work harder than everybody else. So we're taking that with us. And we're, we're saying opportunities are coming and we're not, we don't feel confident enough to say, I don't have the capacity to do this. It's too much. We've got a lot of FOMO. We feel like if we say no, we're going to lose the opportunity. Or we need to show them that, you know, we deserve to be here. That time you're here. You already deserve to be here. You got here. Check your CV. This is why you're here. But again, the thoughts in your mind are just taking you away from all the actual evidence. And that might even extend into her social life as well. She's that person that's always helping people when she hasn't got the time, giving people money when she hasn't got the money, sorting things out when she ain't got the headspace to sort things out for other people. That person, because the boundaries are not great. She's not used to saying no. So then we've got that piece as well. Burnout is really common. So burnout is you've done all of that stuff. So, you know, you've overthought things too much. You've doubted yourself. You've procrastinated. You've done so much work. There's no life balance, work life balance, but you've kept going for too long in that space. And then you get to the point where waking up in the morning and I've experienced this as well. Waking up in the morning is just as soon as you open your eyes, it's anxiety and stress. What shit is it going to bring you? But you've got too much to do. You don't know if you're going to do it. You've got the self-doubt. You've got the talk in your head. So it just feels too much. Then you start becoming more irritable. Your energy levels start decreasing. You're not even doing anything more. But it's that mental energy that you're losing, that emotional reserve, I would say, to be able to deal with difficult situations that we usually have, that's depleting. So one little thing that usually wouldn't bother us, now everything's pissing us off. And that's going to extend into our relationships as well, our families, friends and stuff like that. You might be more tearful. You might be, even when it comes down to like working out, if you go to the gym or not, you might not just have as much energy to do the reps and all of these things. And you're like, I need to slow down. The back of your mind, you always know I'm doing too much. I'm doing too much. Your families want you to do very well because they don't want you to have to struggle in a nutshell so they're pushing you pushing you pushing you they see you doing certain things that are positive and they're like this is excellent do more of that oh you got this award you got this do more of that do more of that say like okay i want to keep my family happy and do you not think as well that sometimes it's subconscious absolutely i think there was a part of the book yeah where you spoke about um perfectionism yeah and it was like where does it come from it comes from your childhood did you have a parent that put this pressure on you and i was thinking to myself I definitely am a perfectionist, yeah. Yeah. But I didn't have a, a parent that put a pressure on me. But now you, what yeah. you just said, I feel like that's this is what it might have been. Because I saw my mum respond positively and Absolutely. I liked the way it made me feel, I, I then wanted more of that. Yeah, positive reinforcement. So again, it doesn't have to be, you have to do this. It can just be, even a facial expression as a child, this is how we learn how to be human beings. And it can be from verbal contact, like this is bad, this is good. Or it can be, 
from, you know, when you got a really good grade at school and then you saw a big smile on your mum or dad's face. Now you've associated that, getting good grades with making your parents happy and getting a smile because it feels nice. So these subconscious communications that we have or, sorry, non-verbal communications that we have with the people around, the adults around us and even our peers as well, they stay with us. Our brain holds on to things like this because we, it helps us to navigate the world. But if we have any family or friends that are skewed in any particular direction, like they really want you to do well in school or they really want you to do, be a really good footballer or whatever it is, I don't know, then you're going to grow up with that. You can't help it. Like it just, you absorb it, we're like sponges and then we take it with us. And it's only when we start to unpack certain cycles that we get in, and this is what we do in the therapy room as well. These expectations that you have of yourself, where does it come from? Because you don't have these expectations for every, any, everyone else. Like you are very, very nice to everybody else. You give them their time, you respect their boundaries, you don't ask them for too much because you don't want to be seen as, you know, a burden. You don't want to, all of these things. But when it comes to yourself, the expectations are high. You're very, very critical. You speak to yourself like shit in your mind. This is why most of us that struggle with high function anxiety have it in the first place because our internal voice is very negative. But we didn't necessarily, we weren't born with this internal voice. So we have to figure out where it comes from and look at the evidence of today. So now I'm not going to feel sad because being sad and crying and that's, that's not how I'm supposed to live. And then when we get older these natural emotions that we all have, that we're supposed to feel for a reason. We have them, every single emotion is here and designed to keep us alive, but we push them away and we keep going and we're not vulnerable because that feels awkward because we didn't grow up like that. But actually we need to be able to have the language for our emotions. We need to be able to share how I'm feeling. It doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. Like if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling sad or scared, say it, it's an emotion. Don't let, if anyone, the only people that do not feel sad or anxious are people that are not alive anymore. RIP, do you get what I mean? That's it. From when you're human and you're not a robot, you're going to feel emotions. Trying to deny your emotions is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And that can be because of how your family and the people around you when you were younger, how they uh, expressed emotion. Sometimes it's easier to feel angry. So because you're used to seeing people that are angry, so you can shout and you can cuss and you can scream because that's what you saw and it's more comfortable. But when it comes to feeling sad and crying with your friend, especially for men as well, black men, it's like, no, I don't feel sad. I'm cool in it. Like, no, it's cool. Actually, you know, when you see an angry person mm-hmm. underneath that could be sadness. Because especially with children as well, it, it kind of skips. It's the sadness you feel, but sadness feels painful, feels very, very bad. And also you might not have the environment to be able to feel comfortable to express it. So you kind of skip the sadness, go into anger because that's easier to express. But all people see is the angry person. And you and now because you're angry, your behavior is reflecting that anger. People are seeing that angry behavior and you're not going to get your needs met because now the problem is the anger. Right. And how you respond to that. When actually underneath that is the sadness. If you were able to feel the sadness and say it, you would cut out all the. The amount of people I feel like they would not be in jail, they would be alive, they would not, they'll not, they'll be such in such difficult situ, different sorry situations today if they were just able to say this really hurts me. The way people see me hurts me. The way people treat me hurts me. This thing happened to me and it really hurts me and I feel sad about it. And just sit with somebody and just be validated. You don't even need solutions more time. You just need to be seen.
that was really useful advice. And I think in your book, something that makes the book why a lot of people need to buy it is because there's so much practical advice given in a way that's really accessible and digestible to anyone reading it, whether it's your first time encountering conversations about mental health or you're another mental health practitioner yourself. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Something you spoke about in your book, again, this is going back to me, um, (laughs) was anxiety from posting on social media. Yeah. And that's something that is a real hindrance to my career right now because I definitely live and breathe that. Like, what advice do you have for getting over that? You know what I'm going to say, just do it. That's it. Really, still? Do Be like Nick and just do it. I hate posting. I didn't have, before I started my Z therapy, I didn't even have a personal Instagram page. Let me not lie to you. I had my lurker page, you know, so I can go on whatever it is, Shade Bar and all them things and pre, whatever. But, <laughs> but I, I had to show up. And when I first started with the page, I used to just always just post um, graphics, like illustrations and doodles and stuff like that. It took me a while to show up, like show my face. People didn't know who I was for ages. And by these times I had like 200,000 followers. Posted it. Everyone was just really, really happy to see me. Oh, okay, cool. You're the, you're the person that runs a page. Excellent. So then I had to keep doing it and keep doing it. And sometimes I get too busy and I'm like, I can't, I don't like taking pictures as well. I can't be bothered with the whole oh, kiki pose. Oh, do this, do this, do that. I can't bother with it. But I need to in order so people can see who I am and, you know, connect with me. So I just started posting more and finding more time to take the pictures and doing all these reels and whatever, which I hate doing too. But again, the longer I put things off, the harder it is for me to get started. But once I did get started with it and started posting, I'm putting up pictures of me and my headscarf and all of these things. I'm like, I don't care. I'm doing stories with my like uh, pajamas on, headscarf tied at the front. Like this is... You love this page. This is who runs this page. This is who's talking to you. Like, if you don't like it, find a different page. That's it. So, and I started doing that. And then I realized it's fine. People just want to see, people just want to see me. They just want to know who is telling them all of these things that they should be doing with their life. And now it's not an issue. Something that I really wanted you to explain on this podcast, because um, I learned about this recently in my therapy session and it really helped me to rationalise my thoughts. Um, and I think yeah. it's relatable for anyone that has anxiety or that has um, complex PTSD or anything like that, is the forced car, uh, the faulty car alarm system. Yes, yeah. Would you mind just explaining that for people listening? Because yes. I, I think it, it, it really helped me a lot and I feel like it yeah. will help people listening. Yeah. So sometimes uh, everybody has a threat response. You might have learned it in school as the fight or flight response. But this is something that we're set up with to predict and respond to danger or threat. And we can see it like a car alarm. However, if we have maybe we've experienced trauma, usually down to trauma, actually, and it can be complex PTSD. So it doesn't have to be a um, a typical conventional trauma it can be a relational trauma attachment trauma anything like that sometimes these systems these uh, these within our bodies they kind of get a little bit off balance because of that because we had to process something that was really difficult for us to process at the time we might not have processed it as well as other stuff because it was so hard to deal with at the time so our car alarm which is our internal threat detector gets a little bit faulty, gets a little bit too sensitive. And this is especially for people that experience a lot of anxiety in situations that they're thinking, why am I anxious about that? So you can see it like you've got a car alarm and you want the car alarm to work. Of course, that's what it's in there for. 
You want it to know when someone is trying to break in your car and go off to alert you to do something about it. But you don't want it to be going off willy nilly every time somebody walks and brushes past the car. You've heard that uh, that 40 car alarm at three o'clock in the morning that's going off. And, you know, nobody's troubling that car at all, but it's still going off. That's what our threat system can end up um, being like. The faulty car alarm, way too sensitive. Things that are not actually a threat get interpreted as a threat. And our bodies and our threat response doesn't have time necessarily to decipher a real threat from a fake threat. So it's just going off like the 40 car alarm. And that, as I said, that that fault comes from and this is this is a human condition as well. So I'm saying faulty car alarm. But when it comes to you as a person, you're not a faulty person. You're just a person that's dealt with some shit. But the the. The difficulty comes because you've had difficult experiences. Let's say that you, um, I don't know, in school you got bullied. So now the threat for you becomes being around a group of other women. Because you're like, oh, um, even though you know I'm grown now, you're still part of you is still stuck on back then. And because you're still stuck on back then, you're still trying to protect yourself from potentially feeling how you did back then. So when you're around a group of women, they might, you, they could not have said a word, nothing at all. But you walk in there and you're like, I'm anxious. Everyone else seems fine, but I feel anxious. And it's because our car alarm is going off. But once I realised that, I just thought to myself, okay, I just need to show up, innit? People are going to like me. People are not going to like me. Doesn't it, it doesn't really change anything. Let me just be myself, get that evidence that I'm, you know, get that evidence that this is not a threat. Let me act as if it's not a threat. Everybody feels anxiety. So if you feel anxiety going into an exam, going into a new job, going into something new, then that's fine. That's to be expected. Sometimes a little bit of anxiety can push you to focus and to sometimes even perform better. That's a little bit of anxiety. So don't you know feel bad if you feel anxious and you're doing a lot of new things. That's natural. It's when anxiety gets so high to the point where you, you don't want to do it you're saying no and you're losing opportunities that's when it needs to be addressed and the last question I wanted to ask you is something you mentioned earlier which was this idea around labels and you were saying that people have like mixed opinions on them and um I feel like I'm definitely one of those people I feel like I don't even though we have the community don't black woman I don't say I'm I'm pro-black I'm just black and this is something I'm passionate about connecting black women across the globe you know um if it was a working class group, I probably would do that as well because I'm working class. But it's, it's yeah. different because your class, my class will change and it's changing as opposed to my race will never change. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I feel like when I got my diagnosis, so I got, I got a diagnosis done in the last 12 months and it was really important for me to get it done because prior to that point, I kind of like just self-diagnosed myself and yeah. I felt like I needed confirmation so that I knew that I could give myself the best tools and resources to show up as the best version of me. Yeah. And at the time when I got it, I remember... I just, I just sighed and I was just crying. And it was like, I, I felt sadness, but I felt really happy. I've never yeah. felt so, the split emotion yeah. at the same time. I was happy because I was like, I feel seen, I feel heard. I feel like what I've been going through has been validated. But then yeah. I felt sad because I was like, oh, I've really been through shit, boy. Like, yeah. <laughs> do you yeah. get what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel yeah. like I'm someone who on one hand is like, fuck labels. And on the other yeah. hand, I'm like, when it comes to my mental health in particular, yeah. I find them really, really useful. Not yeah. to be like, okay, 
I'm an anxious person. Oh, okay, cool. So one of the things that I have is complex PTSD, yeah? So it's not to be like, okay, um, I have trauma and now I've got issues and I'm about... I don't, I don't look at it like that. I look yeah. at it more like, okay, yeah, I went through this and these are the things that will actually show up and yeah. this is what I can do to combat it. Right. So yeah, I wanted yeah. to kind of get your own opinion. Yeah. I guess kind of objectively speaking, although it might be hard to detach from your role, <laughs> um, of what you think about labels. Yeah. So I... I have a love-hate relationship with labels because some labels have a very big stigma to them, like um, personality disorder, which they now called emotionally unstable personality disorder or something like that. And I'm like, why, why would you? Anyway, so there's there's certain labels that just sound very negative. Yeah. Um, and we're kind of moving, we're actually kind of moving away from those labels as well. They've stopped diagnosing people in the NHS anyway, under 16 with personality disorder, just because of the the negative connotations that comes with saying I've got personality disorder but actually having the label so so as clinical psychologists and psychiatrists when we are treating and diagnosing we have like we have manuals we have diagnostic manuals we don't make the rules and you kind of have to meet certain criteria in order to get certain labels and that's how we can for me personally it's helpful because it informs treatment so I know that, OK, if you have this diagnosis, then this is the typical NICE guidelines. That's what us psychologists use, NICE guidelines, N-I-C-E. NICE guidelines would recommend this treatment with this particular label. So that's helpful for me to have in the back of my mind. So if somebody comes into my room, they've got the label of complex PTSD or whatever it is, then I'm like, OK, cool. I know that NICE guidelines would say to do this treatment. I've got that in the back of my mind. But the assessment process and the formulation process, which is kind of putting all the pieces together, helps me to really fine tune that. So it gets to the point where it doesn't really matter what your diagnosis is. Tell me what you're struggling with. Tell me what you want to be different. Tell me how I know when I've been successful, what will you be doing? And then let's work to do that. Like I'm a problem solver. I have psychological technique and expertise and strategies and theory and knowledge, but I'm a problem solver. And for the person as well, it's validating. Some people might find it validating. Like you said, it was like, wow, like, fine. yeah, there is something. There was something going on for me. And people can, not even people can see that, but it's for this reason. It's putting the pieces together and it's okay. And now you meet other people who've also experienced this and been diagnosed with this and you can talk about it. And you're like, yeah, it's this, there's, and I see this even on the Instagram page and I've got a membership as well, Frozen to Fearless. And people straight in, I've just launched it last week. People straight in with the, yeah, I've got this diagnosis or I struggle with this. And straight away, people are connecting on their labels and their diagnosis. Now, there's some people that don't like their label. And that's absolutely fine. If you don't want to lead with a label, then don't. Like, this is just somebody that's, you know, decided, essentially, that you have this particular thing. And it is based on, if you've got the right person that's diagnosing you, it's based on research, evidence, clinical expertise, all of that good stuff. But you are still the main person, like you're the main character of your life. If you don't want to set your life up and say and introduce yourself to somebody with personality disorder or this or that or the other, you don't have to. Autism, ADHD, there's so many labels. If it helps you, use it, align yourself with it. If it doesn't, throw it out. Like, don't, you don't have to. You still need to make sure that you're doing the work to overcome the struggles associated with the label, but you don't have to lead with it. So thank you so much, guys, for listening. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe and share this episode with someone else that you think might benefit from it too.
You've Got This by Dr. Michaela Dunbar is out now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.